Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with BC's four-step reopening plan announced yesterday. Some restrictions lifted immediately by Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry, including allowing indoor and outdoor dining for up to six people, indoor gatherings with five personal visitors, many other restrictions set to be lifted in stages in the days and weeks ahead. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday getting a little emotional as she announced the plan. This is indeed a good day and one that I've been waiting for for a long time, as I'm sure many people in British Columbia have too. But this plan is a careful and four-step plan to help bring us back together. Our approach, like last year's restart, restart is focused on protecting people and getting safely back to a more normal life. Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking there yesterday with a light at the end of the proverbial tunnel shining uh, more brightly than ever. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, uh, we heard Dr. Henry there getting a little emotional yesterday. How were you feeling yesterday as this plan rolled out? Uh, I felt good. I think uh, it's really good to see the number of people in critical care uh, go down. This has obviously been a focus of mine. Uh, we've gone from a height of 183 in the the height of the third wave to uh, 92 yesterday. And that those are all individuals and having fewer people in critical care, fewer people on ventilators is an extraordinarily good news. So the, the result of that was the four-step plan to reduce... Um, to, to obviously ease restrictions, but the consequence of that for people, for real people, is really profound, and uh, I think about that every day. Okay, I, I'm grateful to you for taking calls from our listeners, and I'm going to open the phone lines right away off the bat here, so now is the time to call if you have a question for Health Minister Adrian Dix about the reopening plan. Where can you go? What can you do? Who can you see? Uh, when will you be able to do it? Here's your opportunity to speak directly to the minister. Phone lines open right now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Minister, just as we get a first caller on the line here, already getting questions coming in for you from uh, listeners on my email and social media, including one here from Chris who says, who wants to know, the new the rule here with um, five people being able to gather inside of your home is that like the same five people that you can meet with over several different meetings, or can you sort of do the mix and match? Can you can you have your parents over for dinner one weekend and the next weekend have your your in laws come over, or does it have to be the same people all the time, or how is that supposed to work? Yeah, so it's five people at a time. So uh, if you wanted to have your parents over this weekend and someone else, your brother and uh, and uh, sister-in-law and uh, two children over the next weekend, you can do that, absolutely. So the idea is to limit the number of people in a household at any given time. I live in East Van. We have about 850 square feet here, and uh, so five might be a little big for me, but uh, but uh, that's what we're doing. So uh, that's how the rule's going to work right. for, so for you could have over the next few weeks. Right, so you could have five people over to your home and then a, a different five people the next night. Is that right that that's right okay that's right. okay good to know you, you've got more friends than me though mike so. okay <laughs> no, i don't know about that Six, 604-280-9898 star 9898 on yourself okay calls coming in ryan in vancouver hi ryan go ahead hey guys uh mr dix 
first of all, thanks for your time coming on and talking to everyone. That's great. Um, I was just curious for last year in May, the numbers dropped this exact same time. So how do we know that it's your policy versus external factors maybe that are kind of playing into it as well? Ryan, I would look at um, the presentation Dr. Henry gave a couple of weeks ago about Prince Rupert, where because of uh, an outbreak there, a significant community transmission, we immunized everybody. And you saw the um, almost immediate over a period of weeks drop in uh, the number of cases. Equally, uh, with respect to Whistler, we saw all of those cases. Mike, you saw that covering the story. And now it's been reduced to very few cases where we immunize first doses, it has an immediate effect, a very significant effect once those doses become uh, fully activated in people, which takes a couple of weeks. We went in long-term care, for example, 49 uh, outbreaks on uh, January 15th. Within a month, we were down to a handful of outbreaks. So the vaccines work. They work effectively, and they're having an impact now. About 64 per, to 65% of adults have been received their first dose of vaccination. Uh, more than 60% of everyone over 12 has received their first dose vaccination, and that's going to have an impact. Okay, let's go to Juanita on the line calling from Surrey. Hi. Oh, good morning to both of you. Um, I'm just wondering uh, if you have any idea, Mr. Dix, as to when elective surgeries will start up again. So we, we've seen some reduction in elective surgeries at... Um, at uh, 12 hospitals in Metro Vancouver. It wasn't the same as the reduction we did last year where we basically canceled all non-urgent elective surgeries around the province. So we've canceled about 1,800 surgeries in this period, the last few weeks. And I'll be making, uh, providing some details about uh, where we're going tomorrow at our, uh, at our, at our uh, daily or twice-weekly twice briefing tomorrow. Uh, with Dr. Henry. Dr. Henry will be providing a briefing on second doses tomorrow and an update on that. Mm. And I'll be speaking about uh, about surgeries tomorrow. So uh, there's good news there. We're moving moving ahead. But again, we're doing it the same way, step by step, prudently, to make sure that we support our healthcare workers okay. in acute care. Okay, Brenda calling from Victoria. Hi, Brenda, go ahead. Hi, Mike. Good morning. And good morning, Minister Dix. Uh, what I would like to know is when will BC seniors in long-term care see the light at the end of the tunnel that was presented to um, British Columbians yesterday. As you say, vaccines have had quite an impact on long-term care, yet families I hear from are still facing fairly severe restrictions with regard to the duration and, duration and frequency of visits and some inconsistencies that are still ongoing. Okay, yeah, and we're working through those. I appreciate uh, your call, Brenda. I have family members in long-term care, so I, uh, I know both at a personal level and obviously as a as being the minister, uh, the challenges there. Uh, you'll be happy to know, first of all, that people in long-term care, the vast majority of them have now received their second dose. About 28,000 uh, residents have received their second dose, about 31,000 their first dose. So we're uh, soon everyone uh, living in long-term care will have received uh, both doses of um, a COVID-19 vaccine. And we're, we made some significant changes in March to increase visitations. And you're going to see more changes as well. Obviously, we are focused on long-term care because of the consequences of COVID-19 for people living in long-term care, making sure that people get their doses, and making sure we go step-by-step through the measures. But I know uh, families of people in long-term care want to visit uh, their loved ones more, want to have free access. There is access, in-room access now, and that was a big change. 
and we're going to do what we've done in every other uh, matter, which is to move carefully and step by step to so make sure when, people are protected. When it's could super pe- important. Soon. When when I, could I, people I expect soon. full access? I would say soon, uh, Mike. But again, what we're what we're doing now is finishing in long term care because of the extraordinary risk there that has been well documented. We don't have to explain that. Uh, we're we're moving right now through second doses. People in long term care got their first dose access. Um, primarily in December and in January, which means they're getting their second doses now. And uh, when many essential visitors also got their first doses early on, about 7,000, and they'll get their second doses soon. And the same is true of workers in long-term care. So we're going, okay. we're moving very prudently, but that will happen uh, soon as well. Long-term care and acute care weren't part of the announcement yesterday because there's significant and ongoing issues in both that we have to deal with, but we're obviously really concerned that the social aspect of life, because it's where residents live, it's their homes, it's not a hospital, it's their home, okay. uh, be maintained as soon as possible. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, come back and take some more calls. Let me ask you this real quick, Minister, before the break. I got an email here from Di, who really wants to know about if her pickleball league uh, can start playing again right now. Outside. Pickleball. I don't, now let, let me just uh, see if the, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you play pickleball outside. I think the wind has some effect on pickleball outside. But uh, in terms of sports and activity, uh, outdoor local games and practices for all ages without spectators can start uh, right now. And um, in uh, on June 15th, uh, spectators for outdoor sports uh, uh, will be allowed up to 50 people. So those changes okay. are happening. And indoor sports for all ages will start in step two. Um, so if it's an indoor team game for all ages, that will be step two. That won't be, that. the earliest that'll be is June 15th. And uh, that of course depends on the, everyone continuing to get vaccinated and continuing to follow provincial health guidance. All right, welcome back. Continuing our coverage of BC's reopening plan with my guest, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Your calls to him, Rose on the line in Surrey. Hi Rose, go ahead. Uh, good morning. Um, my question is, I received my um, uh, email yesterday telling me that I could book my second vaccination, and I tried online yesterday several times and again this morning, and then I phoned in this morning and spoke to a lady who said that, oh, no, the reason I couldn't book was because it was down, the, the booking was down for second vaccinations. And I said, well, can you take it over the phone then? And she said, no, I can't. And I said, how long will it be down? And she said, at least till Monday. Mr. Dix, I'm wondering what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I think, I think Rose, be patient. Um, their second vaccinations uh, are coming for people who are eligible. Uh, I'll check into the situation you talked about because um, I hadn't heard the, of that particular situation. So I'll, I'll check into it on your behalf. But I think um, I think if you call, my, my expectation is you call on Friday. We're giving people an update on second doses tomorrow, and we're advancing second doses ahead of what people um, saw beforehand, and Dr. Henry will be taking people through that tomorrow. So just be patient for a couple of days, and uh, we'll get your booking for a second dose. Okay, let's go to Andrew on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Andrew, go ahead. Hi, right, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, Mr. Dix, I was just curious um, as to the reopening plan, why there were no details provided for uh, the reopening of religious in-person gatherings and why that's regularly um, what seems to be a bit of an afterthought when it comes to um, announcing plans relied upon the um, 
the reporters to have to try to draw out information in regards to uh, religious services. Well, I am, uh, you know, we've been meeting uh, with faith leaders uh, from March uh, 2020 on, on a regular basis, on a regular discussion with uh, people uh, who lead congregations of various faiths across uh, BC, as is Dr. Henry, as is the Premier. So we're very connected to that. There is a there is a group working with faith leaders right now on the details of how they will get organized. But if you look under organized gatherings on uh, in the presentation that Dr. Henry gave yesterday, You'll see that in step one that we're in, that indoor uh, seated organized gatherings are now available up to 10 people. But obviously for many congregations, that's not sufficient. That outdoor seated organized gatherings are up to 50 people. That changes in state step two, which, for the, which the earliest date is June 15th. Indoor seated organized gatherings will be up to 50 people at that time. And we're working with a whole bunch of groups from churches to cultural organizations in the coming weeks to, to see how we can do that most effectively so that people can go to church or to synagogue or to the temple or to Gurdwara uh, safely uh, for everyone, which everybody wants, and uh, come together again. So uh, faith gatherings have been a top priority from the beginning. Uh, we've been, I'd, I'd say, I've met with uh, and spoken to uh, dozens and dozens of faith leaders and community groups, if not more personally, and I know other people have. So it's a high priority, not something to be drawn out, but something we want to not just uh, pronounce on, but work with faith communities on, and that's what's happening now. So that's what the rules say. That's what it says under organized gatherings, and faith gatherings are that. But we're also working on the specific details so that faith communities will be able to come together uh, and, uh, and pray together and be together soon. Okay, Andrew, thank you for the call. Mary Ellen on the line in Burnaby. Hi, Mary Ellen. Hi there. I'm just wondering, going forth, if everything goes as plans, international travel, traveling to, say, going to Hawaii or wherever, down the States, Mexico, will you have to quarantine come, like, November for the two weeks on your return? Uh, I wouldn't expect so. I remember the quarantine is the federal government, so... Uh, I, I learn about those things from them uh, the same time you do. But I think that um, clearly as vaccination uh, increases across uh, places that we will, uh, we will all be safer. But that said, I think the most important thing that everyone can do now is uh, get vaccinated, get their first dose as soon as possible. Then that will mean their second dose as soon as possible, and that will make everyone safer. Uh, in our system, the reason we spent quite a bit of time on our registration system was to ensure that in the end, everyone will have access to their own vaccination records, which may be important, whatever happens with things like vaccine passports at the national level. It's important to have that information. And we're providing it so that individuals can have their own information, not so the government gets that information, so that individuals can have access to that. So I think you're going to be um, uh, almost certainly okay by November in terms of uh, travel. Uh, but in the in the meantime, uh, it's important to stay safe and follow the rules, and that means uh, under the federal rules that the quarantine rules apply. Okay, Minister, less, we just got 30 seconds left here. Uh, CKNW reporting this morning from uh, sources in Washington State that it appears that the, the U.S. Uh, may move to reopen the border unilaterally, allow Canadians across the border into the United States on June 22nd. Have you heard that? haven't heard that yet, so uh, I'll wait for that, but that'll probably be a question we get tomorrow, uh, so people should uh, see what we think about that tomorrow. Would you have any concerns uh, about that? Uh, I have concerns about everything, Mike. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the short answer okay. is I have concerns about everything, but I think 
again, if we take this on a step-by-step way and that everyone gets vaccinated, right, that'll be okay. critical. one 838 or go to the Get Vaccinated website and get vaccinated. It makes all of us safer. Thank you, Minister. Hey, take care, eh? All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the growing war in the woods over old-growth logging on Vancouver Island now. More than 50 arrests so far in the Ferry Creek area where protesters have blocked logging roads. The Teal Jones Company has a permit in this area to log some very old trees. They've got an agreement with the local Pachidat First Nation, uh, which benefits from this logging. They've asked the protesters to leave, the First Nations have, but it seems like more people are actually arriving, more arrests expected. We've got a great panel standing by on this, both sides of it for you. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. This is illegal. You have no jurisdiction with stolen land. With four officers on one protester, it's clear just how strong their convictions are. I am not under arrest. These people are chaining themselves to objects to try and protect ancient ecosystems. Protesters returned Thursday morning to the police-restricted area near the Kekus watershed locking themselves to bridges and up in trees. RCMP moving in once again, enforcing the court-ordered injunction to arrest those blocking the forestry operations in Tree Farm License 46. We're taking a measured approach uh, to every individual that we deal with. Seven more people have been arrested, six for breaching the injunction, and one was escorted out with no recommended charges. This, despite the First Nation, whose territory encompasses the Ferry Creek watershed, also taking a stand, with repeated calls for protesters to move on. Okay, that report there from Kylie Stanton from Global News. Let's discuss now with our panel. we got both sides of it here for you. Sapora Berman on the line. Sapora is an environmental activist and writer. Uh, she was recently arrested at the blockade. Sapora, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, Bill Dumont is also on the line. Bill is a professional forester. He's a former chief forester for a major BC company. Please welcome him to the show. Bill, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thanks to both of you. Sapora, let me go to you first. You've been a longtime activist on uh, the logging front in British Columbia. People re- remember your role in the, the Clackwood Sound blockades many years ago when there were hundreds of people arrested in the largest acts of civil disobedience in, in Canadian history. You're back on the front lines now. Why did you decide to go out there and and get arrested the other day? In large part because there's really so little productive old growth left uh, in British Columbia. And and we we got the expert panel report that the government commissioned. They recommended deferring logging in the critical at-risk areas of old growth. They actually said it was urgent and immediate. Um, And the government promised to accept the panel recommendations. But they did that last September. And so basically, they just gave notice to the industry, and we're seeing increased targeting and logging of what's left of the old growth across the province, not just at Ferry Creek. So this is an urgent issue. The government is dragging its heels, and I I just think, you know, there are moments in history when when citizens need to stand up, and we needed to 27 years ago, and that's why most of Clockwood Sound and the Great Bear Rainforest still stand today, and we need to now for what's left. Okay, Bill Dumont, what do you think about what's going on? Well, there's no evidence that industry has accelerated the amount of logging in old growth. That's that's simply nonsense. It takes years to get a cutting permit or the ability to start logging. First Nations have to approve logging, and that goes ahead. The old growth report did not call for the immediate cessation of logging in any areas of older forest. 
Sure, there's some urgency to resolve the issue of old growth and old forests in B.C., but the idea that Ferry Creek or any other specific area is the last standing watershed is simply nonsense. For example, within 20 miles of Ferry Creek, there's 10 untouched watersheds. Most of them are in Pacific Rim National Park and other preserved areas. So, sure, it, it may appear that there's some urgency to this issue, but going in and taking a Trump-like approach to violence and and uh, really civil disobedience, uh, insulting the First Nation who have asked people not to come into their territory, and causing a lot of trouble for the RCMP, it, it isn't warranted. I think government is planning to take action, but because of many things, including the need to consult with First Nations, yeah. It takes time, and in the meantime, there is nothing going to be lost by logging a small part of a cut block in the middle of uh, an area near Ferry Creek. Sapporo Berman, what do you say to that? Bill, Bill we've both been at this a long time, um, and, I, and, and I, I, I really don't think what you just said is, is, is true. I was there on the ground. I walked to the end of the road that it leads into the Ferry Creek headwaters and walked down into that forest. There are a thousand year old yellow cedars in there and, and the road is poised right at the edge. I think there is an urgent time frame issue. The expert panelists themselves have said that. Look at the interview, a detailed interview with Gary Merkel yesterday um, in the Narwhal, the science report that came out last week by Rachel Holt and others, which identifies the at-risk old growth pockets that are left in the province and, and urges the government to do uh, immediate deferrals. The expert panel in recommendation number six explicitly says these areas need to be immediately deferred to maintain options in order to then have the conversations and proper consultation across the province with First Nations, with, with forestry communities, and, and design what we need to do. And I, I okay. probably don't need to remind you that 25 years ago, the old growth panel said almost the same thing. So, okay. so we're so, seeing these recommendations over so, and over so and, and not seeing every the morning, on the ground. The majority of people in Vancouver wake up and look at the North Shore. Virtually everything they see from Vancouver is old-growth forest. That is where some of our oldest forests in B.C. are, over 2,000 years. They're never going to be logged. It isn't the suggestion here that there's some urgency that, that something's going to be lost that's irreplaceable. That, that's simply rhetoric. It, it's, it's misleading. It doesn't help the public to understand the issue. And I think that um, a more moderate approach without violence, with respecting First Nations, who's in this case have approved the timber harvest that's planned, uh, is, is the proper approach. I think government has in the past too much made decisions without consulting everyone. And in this case, First Nations have to agree that that they want the deferral of logging in their territory, and they have said no. Not, they have said no in Ferry Creek. What do you say, Sapporo, what do you say to the First Nation in this case, the Pachidot First Nation, whose leadership through their elected chief and also the hereditary chief there, uh, put out a very clear statement 
that they didn't want outsiders coming in and blocking roads and and you defied that and went out there anyway and blocked a road and got arrested like why why we why are you defying that first nation and their wishes well, first of all, um, it's very clear that there's not consensus within uh, the Indigenous nation. There were statements that you can find um, that were put up by the uh, uh, Fair Creek blockade, um, a letter uh, from elders uh, and hereditary chief of the Pachadot uh, and, and young Indigenous leaders, uh, counselors themselves, some of them, urging people to come and stand for what's left of the old growth. So I think there's not consensus within the community. That much is clear. And honestly, I think the Pachadot have been put in an untenable position by the government and the industry. I, I expect that no one came to them and said, do you want to protect these small areas of old growth left? And how do we support you in doing that? They came to them and said, will you sign this and oppose the logging blockades? And then you'll get a say. That's not reconciliation. That's bribery. That's you say absolutely that, not the process that's followed in British Columbia. Uh, Spora, you, you, you know that. You've been around long enough, just like I have. That is not how consultation works with respect well, to timber harvesting well, plants. The idea of coercion or pressure or anything else is nonsense. It's an insult to First Nations to suggest that they would accept that, and that's not the way it's done. Sapora, so, what do you say to that? Well, I think it's worth noting um, that there have been several resolutions of Indigenous nations across the province. The Union of BC Indian Chiefs in September put out a declaration calling for old growth to be protected that was signed um, by dozens and dozens of nations. I myself was invited to a meeting just last week um, where hundreds of chiefs sat on Zoom and heard the science uh, uh, report um, from scientists Rachel Holt and others. And their response, um, uh, dozens of them, was these areas need to be deferred right away and then we need to have proper consultation and discussion about what happens. Okay. The, okay, let me no let me disagreeing. I'm in the tourism business myself. I do tours of old trees. I go to Haida Gwaii, take people, show them the beautiful forests up there. No one's disagreeing that we want an adequate representation of our old forests preserved. But this approach of conflict, violence, exaggeration of the facts, they're not even facts. Uh, just it isn't the appropriate way that we resolve things in British Columbia. You and I, Sapora, we sat at the table in the Great Bear Rainforest. We came up with a solution there that has generally been accepted by all the parties there, including First Nations. So it's it's certainly able we're able to come to an agreement. But this idea in Ferry Creek of using like really awful tactics against the loggers, destroying the ambulance of the logging crew, cutting its brake lines, uh, and the exaggeration and the harassment of the RCMP who are just doing their job in the direction of the courts, th- that's not the way we resolve things in B.C. Okay, let me maybe jump- an approach that's taken in the U.S. or other places, but it's not the way to get decisions made in B.C. Okay. And I think the government the way it's standing up and refusing to to get involved and specifically stop the logging company 
is is appropriate. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue discussing the uh, logging disputes uh, on Vancouver Island right now. More than 50 people arrested so far, more arrests expected. My guests are Sephora Berman. She's an environmental leader. She was arrested at the blockades just the other day. Bill Dumont, he's a professional forester. Okay, Sephora, I know you wanted to respond to something Bill said there just before the break. Thanks so much, Mike. Um, three three quick points um, responding to Bill. The first is he he, he referred several times uh, to, to violence uh, on the blockades. Uh, I was there uh, for several days. I met teachers and sawmill workers, an Olympic gold medalist, scientists. These are British Columbians uh, who, uh, from all walks of life, who are standing up very uh, peacefully. And honestly, the only struggles and violence um, that I saw or heard of um, were uh, 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 indigenous youth when they were being arrested um, by the RCMP, and that's on video, and 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 certainly not from any of the folks who are who are standing up to protect the old growth. Secondly, Bill said several times, "This is not how things are done in BC," and and unfortunately, it's actually exactly ha- how things have been done in BC for more than the last thirty years, from Mears Island when the Nuchalmets stood up to blockade and protect that, to Clackwood Sound, to the Great Bear Rainforest, to many other regions, we have had a situation where the government keeps allowing uh, the industry uh, to log in ways that are not actually recommended by the science panels, the old growth panels, the back to the 80s with the core, and 90s with the core panels, and, and blockades and protests have been necessary okay. in order to raise awareness and shift. And, and I will, would like to, to remind uh, Bill that when I was blockading in the Great Bear Rainforest, he and others called me a terrorist and said that this shouldn't be happening and that it was, um, it was absolutely unnecessary. Well, 10 years later, we all stood on a stage together and the province thanked us for being eco-heroes, for saying the same thing. Okay, Bill, what do you say? How do you respond to that? Well, uh, Spora, let's not rewrite history. On Roderick Island, uh, Chief Percy Starr came over and asked you there not to be involved and asked you to leave his territory, and you respectfully did. I don't know why you didn't do the same in Ferry Creek when the chiefs and the elected, both elected and hereditary chiefs of the Pachadat ask the same respect that you not do that in their territory, and you you ignored them. Um, I I don't agree that the vast majority of changes that have been positive from my perspective in forestry in B.C. in the last 30 years have all needed to be precipitated by some sort of civil disobedience or violence. Actually, I saw violence on the TV coverage of Ferry Creek. It was awful the way the, the RCMP were being... Uh, yelled at and screamed at and, and harassed by the, the group workers. And, you know, what about the destruction of, of Teal Jones's ambulance, uh, cutting the brake lines? I mean, you know, that there was, there's people spit at at a rally in support of the loggers in Masachi Lake last Sunday. I mean, let, let's lower the temperature a bit, folks, and, uh, and get this issue resolved. And I think it is yeah. being resolved. But you can't push First Nations, who, who are the primary uh, group and, and responsibility that has to be addressed when, you, when it comes to changing the whole forest management okay. regime to reserve more old growth. Okay, Sapporo, we, we just have one minute left, sadly. Go ahead, Sapporo. 
Well, two critical issues. First of all, uh, uh, Bill uh, keeps saying that there's consensus uh, from Indigenous nations, and there's certainly not. And folks who are standing up to defend old growth and Fairy Creek right now are doing it at the invitation of uh, hereditary leaders um, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and standing with. Um, many indigenous uh, leaders who were some of whom were arrested yesterday. I and, think it's unfair. And secondly, to, Bill has to, said that the expert panel didn't recommend protecting old growth, and it's right here in recommendation six. Urgently, we need to defer development in old forests where ecosystems okay. are in very high and near-term risk of, of biodiversity loss. Okay, we sadly, maps, sadly, guys, happening. sadly, guys, I have to jump in and end it there. It's been a, a terrific discussion, and I want to thank you both, and we could certainly fill the whole show discussing this issue. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about BC's reopening plan announced yesterday. What if you've been working from home? Thousands of British Columbians have been doing just that. Can your boss make you go back to the office now? What if you don't feel safe? What if you have not been vaccinated yet? What if you want to say no to things like in-person meetings when they start up again? So many questions about how this is going to work as people head back to work. Have a listen to this now. This is Ravi Kalon. He's BC's Minister of Jobs. And here he is talking about uh, the process of going back to the office. For offices and workplaces, step one allows for the work from home guidance to be lifted gradually. At this time, employees can now work in the office for a few days a week following their employer's existing safety plan. Okay, Ravi Kalon there, BC's Jobs Minister. Let's discuss now with my guest, Leah Moody. Leah is a managing partner at Samfiro Tumarkin LLP. They're an employment law firm, and I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Leah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, so a lot of questions here about how this is going to work. Everyone wants to get back to normal, but for thousands of people who have been working at home during this pandemic, this is going to be quite a shift going back to the office. Can your boss force you to go back to work at the office or can do you have any rights to continue working at home how is that going to work yeah so like with anything everything is going to be context and fact dependent right so what might apply to one person might not apply to another it's going to depend on the individual facts of any given situation but for the most part your employer absolutely has the right to dictate where work takes place and if the provincial health authority has now come out and said returning to the office is okay, we are no longer recommending that if you can work from home, you should, and your employer wants you to come to the office uh, and you don't have a reason to stay home, then you will be required to attend back into the office. Ooh, okay, what if you don't feel safe doing that? You know, like what if you think like, look, oh, yeah. you know, I'm still worried. Oh, and I'm sure that that's going to be a major problem. I mean, it was when we started reopening, uh, you know, phase two and phase three last summer. And, you know, what generally happens in that situation is that every employer in BC is going to have the obligation to make sure that the workplace is safe, right? So until we've reached that point where we're all going back to, you know, quote unquote normal in September, it's going to mean that we're still enacting all of those safety measures that we're all now so familiar with over the last 15, 16, who, who knows how many months I'm in a black hole of time at this point. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, they are going to have that obligation to keep the workplace safe. And you as an employee have a right to a safe workplace. So right. if you are concerned, right, if, if, if your employer has said, come on back to the office, we've taken down all the plexiglass, we've, um, you know, we've burned the bottles of hand sanitizer, and, you know, no one has to wear a mask anymore, that is something that you can object to. You can tell them you don't feel safe returning in that environment. 
Um, you can stay home while that is being investigated. And if it isn't investigated to your satisfaction, you can com- make a complaint with uh, WorkSafe BC. Wow. Okay. So who would do the investigation in that case? Like, is this an employment standards thing or like, a, or like you said, like a workers' comp thing? Yeah, it is a workers' comp thing. So yeah. it, the first stage is the employee has to make a, a complaint to the employer directly. And then the employer, under the Occupational Health and Safety Regulations, they have the immediate obligation, the immediate mandate to conduct their own investigation. If they come back to you and it's not resolved, you can escalate it to this next step. And the next step is uh, is basically a redo of the investigation. So the employer still does their own investigation, but it would be with like a union representative or somebody from a health and safety committee or even just with some other third party. And if at that point it's still not uh, resolved, then you would make the complaint to WorkSafe BC and they would send um, an investigator with WorkSafe. Wow, wow. Okay, what if you're not in a union? Like non-union workers still covered under this, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Union and non-union workers. um, You know, the only suggestion for union was that that would sort of be the most obvious individual to come and take part uh, as part of a second investigation would be a union representative. But, of course, union and non-union workers alike all have access to the same rights under uh, WorkSafe BC. I can't imagine a situation where if the government has said, look, we've reached a kind of a critical mass of vaccinations, we're, we're dropping all the restrictions, we're back to normal. I can't imagine WorkSafe or any other adjudicator saying, no, you're st- you should still be, you're, you don't have to come into work anymore. I mean, if the employer is in good faith, uh, work to make a safe work environment, I imagine you'd, it'd be a lost cause to try and say, I, I want to continue to work from home. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that, you know, we still have to really find out how the science is going to play out with all of this. You know, um, you know, I think variants are still a live question and how the vaccines are going to respond to the variants. I do think that there is some space for employees who have pre-existing conditions or who are particularly Mm. vulnerable um, to say, you know, okay, well, maybe we've reached herd immunity, but if I get sick, it's, it could be fatal. You know, that could be somebody who could ask for medical accommodation and be able to continue to work from home. So there are still going to be situations where people can work from home. Okay. Speaking to employment lawyer, Leah Moody. Now that's really interesting what you just said there about, let's say someone doesn't take the vaccine whether it's because they've got allergies, some kind of medical condition, or, or they invoke a religious belief, or they just don't want to take the vaccine. What are your rights there? Yeah, so, I mean, the reason why you don't take the vaccine is going to be critical here. Um, mm. You know, your personal choice is not something that's protected under human rights legislation. Uh, if you can't take the vaccine because of a medical condition or if you uh, are unwilling to take the vaccine for religious reasons, um, then, you know, that is something that is protected. And if the workplace is unsafe, if you are unable to actually be in the workplace, if you are not vaccinated, then that is something that you could, in theory, ask for accommodation for. Uh, and uh, an employer would have to let you work from home. But if this is just, if it's a personal choice that you're making that, you know, it's just vaccine hesitancy, or maybe you just don't want it for whatever other reason, uh, that is that is not sufficient. Um, to right. ask your employer for accommodation, uh, and that's going to be a very tricky situation going forward. I think. Right? Could you could you get fired in that in that case? Like, would there be justification fire you for cause for not showing up to work? 
not not for cause, but I mean, mm. your employer can terminate you anytime for any reason, right? I mean, they can terminate you because they don't like guys named Mike anymore, you know, or uh, they they don't like the sweater that you're wearing, or whatever the case may be, and and that can include um, an unwillingness to be vaccinated if there's no. Um, protected ground under human rights legislation that you're relying on to not be vaccinated, that your employer does have the right to terminate you just like it would for any other reason. They just well, have to pay hang, you separately. Well, wait a sec. So your boss is allowed to fire you if they don't like the sweater you're wearing? Wouldn't that be like wrongful dismissal or... Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's a great question and it's a big reason why I have a job is because a lot yes. of um, one of the biggest myths out there is that you have to have a reason to be terminated. It has to be, you know, performance based or they have to terminate somebody who's been there less years than you. But no, I mean, you can just your manager can wake up one morning and decide they just feel like a change and they want you out. It's only a wrongful dismissal if they don't pay you the appropriate amount of severance. Uh-huh. So in that right. situation, they have to pay you out. They have to give you the notice. They've got to pay you your severance. But it's not a wrongful dismissal unless they're terminating you for a discriminatory reason or a reason that's related to, um, you know, it's it just say you did raise a complaint of workplace safety in the workplace um, right. and they terminate you because of that. That's also illegal. Okay. And the severance is what? Minimum two weeks salary? Is that what it is? Uh, it's so under the Employment Standards Act, it's one week for every year that you've been employed, roughly to a oh. maximum of eight weeks. But actually, you've got most employees in British Columbia have far greater entitlements under the common law, and it's uh, it's around one month for every okay. year that you've been employed to a maximum of twenty four months. Okay, let's say uh, your boss says, "Okay, I'm assigning you to go to travel to the United States and attend some giant trade show or conference," and and you're worried about that. You, you're worried about mixing in with like massive crowds. Can you refuse that work? You can refuse any work that you reasonably think is unsafe. Yes. Yeah. So if you if you have a legitimate concern that what you are being asked to do, whether it's travel to the U.S., whether it's coming into the office or anything else, um, that is something that you can refuse if you think it's unsafe. Now, that being said, if an investigation is done and it's determined that it, it is safe, uh, then that is something that you cannot refuse any longer. But you can certainly make the initial complaint. Okay, that's very interesting. What about your vaccine status? Can your boss ask you if you've received the COVID vaccine? Oh, man, the $100 question, Mike. I, mm. I We think that in most cases, they can. The question is, what are they going to do with that information? And, you know, whether or not they're going to keep a record of it, right? There's privacy considerations. There's all sorts of things to consider here. But I think that for many businesses, they've had to, you know, I think about a restaurant, you know, that's right now operating maybe at 25% capacity for, for, you know, to accommodate spacing issues. If, if they can assure, um, you know, their clientele and their staff that everybody has been vaccinated, perhaps they can now have 100% capacity and they can reopen their business and, and you know, pursue their, their full vision of what their business looks like to the fullest extent. In that case, they would need to know. Uh, who's been vaccinated. And so I do think there are going to be various situations in which your employer is going to uh, ask that information and be entitled to it. All right, welcome back. Talking about going back to work uh, as we get back to normal with the reopening plan in BC. My guest is Leah Moody from Sam Furo to Markin. She's an employment lawyer. Your calls to her now. Susan in New West. Hi, Susan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Um, what if it's your boss? 
who is not getting the vaccine. I work in a very small office, and it's been said that my boss and an immediate family member who also works there will not be getting the vaccine. Oh, how come? Yeah, are they, I mean, they anti-vaxxers? I have to presume that. No other reason has been given. Yeah. Okay. Leah, what do you think? Yeah, I think that in that case, you know, it's going to be a situation where if them not being vaccinated makes the workplace unsafe, then that is something that you can object to in terms of coming to work. But other than that, it's, it is their choice. And there's nothing in, in the employment law or anything that's come down from our governments that says that somebody has to be vaccinated. So unless their choice not to be vaccinated is making work unsafe for you, then it's, it's not something that can be uh, remedied through any kind of legal action. But do you think it'd still be a case for a complaint, possibly, Leah? It's, it's honestly, it's hard to imagine how it, it might be. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you were working in like a, a long-term care facility um, and, you know, it, it was exposing clients or other staff members unnecessarily to transmission, that could technically be a complaint. I can see that giving rise to a complaint, but I do think that it would have to be uh, very specific circumstances. Yeah. I think the idea is the most part is that if you want to be protected, you can be vaccinated. Okay, that's really interesting. Kim in Burnaby. Hi, Kim. Uh, reverse the question. The employer moved to working from home during the pandemic. Right. Now the employer is telling me that I can't work or I, I can't work in the office because it's cheaper for them if I work from home. Hmm. So can they make me work from home as opposed to working in an office. Wow. Okay, Leah. Yes, they can. Um, so your uh-huh. employer is going to always retain the right to uh, dictate the place of work. Uh, a lot of companies, a lot of employers are pivoting to, uh, you know, loosening or, or mitigating the budget on their real estate in office space. And they've realized working from home is possible and now they want to keep that. So yeah. it is completely within their, uh, their discretion to decide that they would prefer to have mm-hmm. people work from home and to ask you to do that. Okay, let's go to Jack on the line and Sam and Arm. Hey, Jack. Hi. Uh, I would um, just like to somewhat disagree with your guest here about getting like a month for every year you've been there. I was terminated wrongfully for uh, not going to work for unsafe things. I tried phoning supervisors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I went to a lawyer and because I seasonal, don't make a lot of money, it wasn't worth it. He said, on a good day with a sympathetic judge, I'd get maybe X amount, but his fees would be X amount and it wouldn't be worth it. I ended up going through WorkSafe. They have uh, they make you whole principal. ICBC is going to work on this, so be careful. Uh, make you whole principal. So the money that I got from CERB, because I was unemployed, I then got that deducted from my settlement with the company. So I got very little in the end through the whole process. I was quite disappointed and disgusted with it all. What do you think of that, Leah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so honestly, it sounds like you 
could have benefited from a second opinion. Um, I don't necessarily hear anything that disagrees with me. It just sounds like it wasn't um, it wasn't handled probably in a way that best serves you to maximize the amount of money that you get in your pocket. Um, you know, the way that social assistance plays into settlements is still open for debate. It's certainly something that can be negotiated. Um, and different lawyers offer different packages, right? So uh, rather than have lawyers' fees eat directly into the settlement that you get, there are lawyers who offer um, alternate fee arrangements, which reduce the overall cost and make it, make it much more worthwhile to pursue something. Okay, let's squeeze in one more. Bruce and Delta. Bruce, you got to go quick, okay? Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, I'm a young employee. I am not always clear on what's safe and what's unsafe. If I believe something's unsafe and refuse to do it, what are my rights relative to my employer? Can he fire me? What makes me safe in that okay. environment? Okay, Leah, 30 seconds here. Um, no, you cannot be fired for making a complaint that you feel is legitimate. As long as you honestly feel unsafe, you can make the complaint. Um, it, it doesn't okay. matter if you don't have a, a firm sense of what that is. Uh, as long as it's legitimately held, um, you, can, you can refuse unsafe work and you cannot be fired for it. Leah, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the war on meat now. Some restaurants are dropping red meat from their menus, cooking websites. Some of them are racing beef recipes from their sites, notably Epicurious, one of the largest cooking websites on the Internet. The environmental movement demanding a phase out of beef production. Uh, beef production, they say, causes climate change and global warming. Is meat really bad for the planet? Is it bad for your health? Let's discuss now. What a fantastic panel we've assembled for you now. Mark Sisson on the line. Mark is the founder of Mark's Daily Apple, which is a fantastic blog. He's a leader of the primal food movement. He's a New York Times bestselling author of many books. Mark, thanks a lot for coming on. Mike, thanks for having me, man. You, you bet. Thank you for being here. Also on the line is Jessica Scott-Reed. Jessica is an award-winning writer, animal advocate. She's the co-host of an animal law podcast, Paw and Order. She's a vegan home cook. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Okay. I appreciate both of you being here. Mark, let me go to you first. You've a New York Times bestselling writer. You've written a lot about meat over the years. I know you're a meat eater. You said on uh, Twitter the other day, which got me the idea to do this segment, that there is a war on meat. Could you uh, explain why you think that's the case? Yeah, I, I feel like we're entering a bizarre uh, point in human health and human history. And uh, what I'm seeing uh, with, with regard to the, the movements around to, first of all, suggest that eating meat is bad for you, because it's not, to suggest that the, um, uh, the appropriate... Uh, use of ruminant animals to regenerate uh, the land and to consume those animals somehow is bad for the planet. It's not. Uh, and, and then the, the tendency for tech, big tech, to think that they have a solution by creating fake meat and fake foods mm. that replace probably the, the healthiest form of nutrition in the human diet, not just now, but for the last two million years. Okay, Jessica Scott-Reed, what do you say to that? <laughs> I, I'd have a lot to say about that. I think um, the idea that it's a bizarre time, uh, it's more of a very critical time. It's a very um, 
scary time. And I would much prefer to listen to environmental scientists rather than, uh, you know, a keto cookbook author on why it is that we need to be cutting back on meat production and meat consumption. And it's been made extremely clear that in order to, in fact, save the planet, we do have to cut back. We have such an immense amount of meat production that environmental scientists are asking us to cut down to 90% from what we're eating now. Uh, and there's, there's very good reason for that. And I'd say listen to the science. Okay. How does, how does meat production hurt the planet, Jessica, briefly? Could you explain that to the listener? Sure. Um, we've seen that it accounts for uh, at least 15% of greenhouse gas emis- emissions. Some estimates are all the way up to 52%, uh, depending on measurements. There's also uh, the degradation of oceans and fresh water. Uh, a lot of those animals have to create waste, right? Where do you think all of that waste goes? Uh, the use of land. The, it's a tremendous amount of land on the earth that we use to farm animals and to create the food that those animals have to be fed. Uh, one study out of the U.S. said that if uh, all of the U.S. went to a plant-based diet, there would be enough land to feed all of Americans plus over 300 million more people. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why meat production at the capacity at which we see it today has become so problematic. Okay, Mark, you buying that? Well, I'm literally buying part of her argument, which is part I agree with, that the way that we have raised meat in the past 50 years has gotten out of hand. So I agree that what we call concentrated animal feedlot operations, where they're, um, you know, cattle in particular, we could talk about other animals, but cattle in particular are, um, you know, are, are raised on grass for a little while and then fed grains for the remainder of their lives until they're put in a feedlot where the waste is concentrated. Um, I agree that that's, that's not a good way to continue doing what we're doing and not, a good, not good for the environment. I take exception to the idea that, that some amount of CO2 or methane produced by cattle is contributing to global warming or climate crisis. I, I take huge exception to that. But let's just backtrack and look at the way animals are treated, the way they're raised. If we were to raise ruminant beasts, in particular uh, cows, cattle, uh, using their native diet, which is grass, if we were to grass feed these animals, which is what they're supposed to be and, and have been consuming up until we interfered with this, if we could find rangeland uh, and even reclaim desertified lands, we could be creating topsoil. You say what happens to the waste when animals eat uh, their native diet and they eat grass and then they poop and they, their hooves, they drive that into the ground. That's, what, that's how topsoil is created. And the concept of eating only plants and a plant-based world, uh, which relies on what we call monoculture or monocrops, uh, without the participation of regenerative agriculture using these ruminant animals, um, leads us down to this horrible uh, path of, of less and less nutrition because we're, we're depleting the soils of nutrients, and the only choice is to put hmm. chemical fertilizers in there to create them. Jessica? What do you say to that? Yeah, there's, there's definitely this uh, new kind of growing notion that cattle ruminants are necessary and natural and will help save the soil and thus the planet. We're seeing it used by A&W. It's definitely been hijacked by big beef as the silver bullet. What's missing from those kinds of conversations, however, is the fact that if that's how we were going to move our meat production, specifically beef production, there would have to be a massive reduction in the amount of beef from what we're currently consuming. And 
pro-regenerative agriculture folks don't seem to really want to talk about that part of the conversation. There's just no way to fit that many animals onto the land that we currently have if we want to really raise them all on grass. The other idea, too, is that we need these animals to create healthy soil. And that somehow that means we also need to slaughter and kill and eat them. Uh, We've had ruminants and other kinds of wild animals on land regenerating soils forever. There's definitely a place for agroforestry, wildlife-assisted agriculture. There's such thing as veganic farming, veganic regenerative farming, uh, and also animal sanctuary-assisted farming. There's a lot of ways to regenerate soil with the help of animals without having to slaughter okay. them. Okay, let me ask you this, Mark. I'm speaking to Mark Sisson, Jessica Scott-Reed. We're talking about meat. Um, Mark, you're a former elite athlete, uh, world-class Ironman competitor, and you say meat is part of a, a healthy diet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is eating meat actually good for your health? Because we hear a lot on the other side saying the opposite. I mean, that's just another two-hour two discussion or two-hour yeah. debate. But, <laughs> yeah. yes, e- eat, eating meat is, is not only healthy, it's probably the, the single healthiest food you can eat. Um, if you look at all of the foods that are available for our consumption right now, animal protein is probably the, the most nutritious form of nutrition uh, that we can take in. And as an athlete, uh, you know, I want to recover, I want to repair, I want to I build myself up. Uh, there has never been in the history of mankind, going back two and a half million years, a society, a people, a race that has been entirely vegan, that has, has existed without animal products. I mean, I think, I think that speaks volumes. So now we're kind of down to what is an appropriate amount of meat. And I might yeah. agree with Jessica that the, the cutting back on meat consumption for some people would, if we could do that sort of across the board, um, you know, might make available more good nutrition to more people. But that doesn't mean cutting it out entirely. It just means maybe cutting back a little bit. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about meat with my guest, Mark Sisson. Mark Staley Apple is his blog. He's the author of many best-selling books, including the new, uh, the Primal Blueprint Diet. Uh, also on the line, Jessica Scott Reed. Jessica is an award-winning writer and animal advocate. Your calls to them, 604-280-9898, star 9898 and yourself. Jessica, real quickly, how do you respond to Mark there in his, his defensive meat as part of your diet there before the break? What do you think? I mean, there's a reason why the Canada Food Guide uh, has moved to focus much more on plant proteins, finally uh, consulting with science instead of industry, removing dairy as a food group. Uh, it's been noted that high consumptions of meat and dairy and eggs, in particular processed meat, has a noted link to uh, premature death, obesity, heart disease, uh, type 2 diabetes, colon cancer. Uh, it's just, it's, it's not recommended by any national uh, health agency in the world to have a meat-heavy diet. Focus on uh, plants, on vegetables, fruits, plant proteins. Uh, it, 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 the science is clear that that's the noted way to health. Okay, well, Mark, I'm sure you would, you would suggest a, a balanced diet, though, right? Well, science is not clear on that. I mean, in fact, that the U.S. Department of Agriculture for years recommended five to 11 servings of grains as the basis of a diet. That's just absolutely unconscionable. It's been a big issue with a lot of food scientists in the U.S. right now. I don't know what the Canadian, um, you know, what the Canadian recommendations are based on. But the, the, when she talks about, when Jessica talks about um, the increased risk for disease by consuming animal protein, she's absolutely wrong. I could show you enough studies that would 
that would completely counteract that and say that there is no correlation, there was no causation uh, between animal consumption and and increased risk of of any diseases. And in fact, it, I could I could show you in, information and and uh, you know scientific results that might point in the other direction. I want to address one thing about yeah. the access to land. If you've ever flown across, you know, from Vancouver to Montreal or from Los Angeles to to, Unor- to, to New York, you see the amounts of unused lands that could be utilized for this ruminant beast grazing production. So that's the issue of, of lack of resources doesn't fly as well. Okay, we got a ton of phone calls here. We'll only have time for a few of them here, but let's squeeze a couple in here. Steve on the line in Delta. Go ahead, Steve. Hi. First off, I'm, I'm sick of this black and white. Like, you know, just saying all plants is ridiculous. Like having meat, we've been eating meat for 100,000 years. You know, whether right. there was guys eating buffalo or deer or snakes, you know, and if we go to just plants or or pescatarian, we're raping the oceans from fish anyway. So we, you got to give people an option for protein, you know, and they say protein from plants and stuff, but the irons and proteins gotten from beans and legumes is like one-tenth or less. So you need the irons and the proteins, and, and we got to have a we got to be gray here, you know. The, the, unfortunately, I forgot her name. The lady, she's she's a black and white. It's all vegetables or nothing. And okay, the well, trying to trying to say a balanced diet. So let's let's be realistic. It's always about balance. Okay, we can't Jess- just throw one thing out. Jessica Scott Reed, how do you respond to that? Well, I would say you know looking at our idea of a balanced diet has changed over time, but look where it's gotten us. Right? Where are we right now with human health, in, especially in Western countries? Where, where have we gotten with the environment? I'd say that moving to an all plant-based diet is the overcorrection that we need. And when it comes to uh, what animal products can provide us, there's nothing unique within animal products that we can't get from other sources. And when uh, authorities on the issue, say the American Dietetic Association, the Canadian Dietetic Association, when they go out and make position papers stating that a well-planned vegan diet can be helpful for any human at any stage of life and may help in the prevention of diseases. You know what? That's the people I'm going to listen to. Okay, Mark, what do you say to that? I'm, I'm, well, I'm not going to listen to them because I don't think they know what they're talking about. I think if you look at the um, American Dietetic Association and their recommendations over the years, it's been horrible. If you, they're, they're the ones who, who assign hospital food, for instance, um, which is some of the worst food in the world. So those, that's not a group that I would look to for advice on how to on how to eat what i would look to is how the human body operates and how the human body evolved over over the millennia over millions of years adapting to eating meat that's we are omnivores for sure but we are largely uh, carnivorous and and any uh, any society around the world that has not had access to animal meat if you told them they could they could have access to animal meat in place of their plant food they would run to get that animal protein Okay, well, Jessica, isn't that true? Haven't we been eating meat for thousands of years? Uh, yeah, and once again, I, I say, where has that gotten us? Thankfully, over time, we've evolved in terms of our uh, knowledge of human health and of nutrition. And listen, I'm not a nutrition expert. I don't know what Mark's credentials are, uh, but I work with a lot in my work. Uh, and one who I work with who's actually local to BC, Dr. Pamela Ferguson, she's a registered dietitian with a PhD in nutrition. And I work with her a lot. And what she tells me, again, is that there's just nothing unique within animal products that we can't get from other sources. Uh, if I could get my B12 from a supplement, 
very much the same supplements we're feeding to livestock. Um, I'm going to get it through there instead without all of the added risk uh, and health okay. issues, environmental issues and ethical issues. I'm going to take it from a pill rather than from a dead body for sure. Uh, okay, running out of time. Squeeze in one more call. Chris and Langley, please go quick. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was just talking about the balance individually, and then there's the balance collectively. Uh, you know, instead of flying over, I, I suggest to your other guests there, drive through Calif- uh, California from the top to the bottom, and all you do is you smell methane and you see 10,000 cows per farm. It's just absolutely disgusting. On top of the water that they need to pipe in to feed these animals, uh, it's the stuff we don't see. So we're talking individually, I need meat, I need uh, plants, okay. but percentage. Look at the percentage of, of, of damage that these uh, industries are causing. If okay. Okay. Um, we only have one minute left, so we just got to wrap it up here. Mark, could you quickly respond there? Sure. I mean, I, as I said, I'm not a fan of CAFO, of concentrated animal feedlot operations, which is what the caller is seeing when he drives down California. I'm a fan of, of regenerative agriculture, taking advantage of the hundreds of millions of acres of unused uh, land in the United States and in Canada, and grazing ruminant beasts and, re- and regenerating the topsoil, rebuilding the topsoil so, so, other, so plants could be grown without chemical fertilizers, and in the process, feeding these animals to humans. Okay, Jessica, 20 seconds. You want to wrap it up there? Yeah, I think the idea of collective eating is important. We're not just eating for our own individual survival right now. We are eating for our collective survival. Uh, and okay. the planet really needs us to focus more on eating plants and far less animals. Thank you to both of you for a really good discussion. We had lots more calls, but sadly, we're just out of time. I would love to have you both back, and we could do it again, because it was just great. Welcome back to the show. They're still not open yet, but in just a few more weeks, movie theaters and live theaters expected to be back in business at reduced capacity initially. Our show contributor, John Jang, spoke with the CEO of the Rio Theater, which is still operating as the Rio Sports Bar, at least for now. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. We're still digesting the four-step reopening plan that was shared by the government yesterday afternoon, and one industry in particular is basically shell-shocked, but in the best way possible. With news that movie and live theaters will be able to open in a limited capacity by mid-June, That means a beleaguered arts sector can finally get back on its feet. Corrine Lee is the CEO of the Rio Theater, and she joins us now. Corrine, what was your reaction to the announcement yesterday, knowing that there's finally a light at the end of the tunnel here? I was really blown away. I I honestly didn't expect... I didn't expect to hear such good news. We've gotten kind of used to being left out of the loop, um, you know, running a a cinema, and... uh, so, yeah, I, I was kind of in shock. It took me a while to uh, absorb this information, but we're really thrilled that we can reopen again. Is this, unfortunately, some bad news as well, because it'll mean the end of Rio, the sports bar, as we know it? <laughs> yes, it's it will be sad to not be the sports bar anymore. But I think what we're going to do is keep some of the good things, which is, uh, you know, maybe we'll still pl- uh, play the UFC and maybe some RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, you know, we had a fun time doing it. So I think the things that worked, um, we can just move forward. And uh, the Rio has always done a variety of things. So we're not limited to just showing movies. Whether it's the Rio, the Arts Club, Performance Works, the arts have not been given an opportunity like this for a long time. Do you get the sense that there's a collective sigh of relief, knowing that for the first time in about six months, you can make plans to prepare for that big return? 
Yeah, I I know that everybody is thrilled with this news that we can reopen. Um, and, you know, uh, we're supposed to open with limited seating on June 15th, but uh, apparently the goal is to remove those restrictions by July 1st, which is just amazing. Um, you know, it's been a really long time to be closed this past, you know, over a year now. Um, so it's a bit overwhelming, to be honest. Um, I almost feel like, you know, it, 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 it almost feels like too good to be true that we could actually put this pandemic behind us. Um, but uh, yeah, so now there's just this rush of energy to get ready to get back open. Um, and yeah, we just can't wait to have Rio customers back and, and see everyone enjoying a show. Um, that's going to be a really great moment. Love it. And while this is all good news and a reason to celebrate, over the past year, we have seen that theaters and the arts were not given an opportunity to safely open when you compare it with other industries. How do you balance that lack of appreciation over the past year with the excitement from yesterday's announcement? It really feels like we've been traumatized for this past year. Um, You know, it's not going to be that easy to just bounce back like it never happened. Um, you know, we suffered a lot and, um, you know, people in my industry, um, just had to do whatever they could to cope and get through it. Um, so even though we're, you know, excited to be reopening, it's, it's not like we've forgotten what we just went through. And, you know, there's even things like, uh, you know, when the restaurants and bars were shut down in March, immediately there was a circuit breaker grant. Theaters have been closed since November, and there was no circuit breaker grant for them. So, yeah, it's it's. I, I think we still feel the sting of being ignored, of not being considered, and just kind of treated like the arts wasn't important. So, I don't know what's going to correct that, um, but you know, hopefully, the province will take a look at the fact that we haven't been given as much uh, financial support as other sectors. Um, and yeah, hopefully they'll correct that mistake. Well, I think it's another feather in your cap as you've managed to lead the Rio through uh, yet another crisis as a CEO. But would you be here today if it weren't for the Rio regulars, the supporters that came out and supported your team when you made that switch to become a sports bar early this year? Absolutely. The Rio community just warms my heart. Um, You know, they bought sports bar t-shirts. They've been sharing their selfies you know, in their sports bar t-shirts and um, they came out even if they aren't sports fans and, um, you know, really rallied to help keep our doors open. So yeah, we're, we're eternally grateful for, for our Rio fans. And um, yeah, that's what keeps us going really. Like it's the community that, you know, especially having had the community be gone for so long, you realize how important it is. And so now I just feel it even stronger. She is uh, Corinne Lee. She is the CEO and boss lady of the Rio Theatre, which will be back in normal operation, fingers crossed, uh, June 15th being the earliest date for that. Corinne, thank you so much for giving us some time here this morning. Oh, can I tell you one thing? Yes, please. We're going to be open as a sports bar June 3rd. So we're going to be, the sports bar is not yet done. We're going to uh, do that until we can reopen as a cinema. Love it. In that case, let's go playoff hockey. (laughs) Right on. Okay, uh, great interview there by our own John Chang with uh, Corrine Lee, the CEO of the Rio Theater. John joins me now. 
Hey, good, that was a really good one, John. I, I, I'm a big fan of Kareen Lee, and I can tell you are too. Um, I think she's done a yeah, – the day she turned the Rio Theater into a sports bar was just very, very memorable. Uh, they were very fortunate, though, she already had that liquor license in place because mm-hmm. not not every theater or movie theater was able to pull something pull something like that off, obviously. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's one yeah. of Corrine's um, big accomplishments as the CEO of the Rio. She's had uh, quite a few challenges in the short history that she's been there, right? I mean, she yeah. had to save the Rio a couple of different times. So she was really just the perfect leader for the Rio throughout this pandemic. And I'm sure there's going to be more challenges for that theater down the road as well. Right. That's kind of cool to hear they're going to go sports a little sports bar iteration here for a little bit longer. So one more chance to go down to the Rio and watch a hockey game, play off hockey, right. as you said. So you've been uh, asking around the whole arts, the arts industry as a whole here and their reaction to the reopening plan. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, just a, a bit of shock, just like Korean is feeling. Uh, we know that the rickshaw, for example, they're also stunned. They take it with a lot of excitement, of course. A lot of live venues around the city, Mike, are just so excited to not just be able to open the doors eventually, but to think about opening the doors and plan for that and bring staff back and start bringing in guests and artists uh, of all different types. So I think there's just a collective sigh of relief. But now comes the really exciting part of being able to put those plans into motion. Okay, one of the things that I really miss is going to live music concerts, and it was just tragic when the Rolling Stones were set to play Vancouver. That got canceled. Hopefully they go back on the road soon. But I just had a my uh, song kick app. It just buzzed on my phone here with Genesis going. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, Genesis going back on the road. I love it. What is it. What about that? Like when When could concerts return? Well, speaking of which, our technical producer, Tim French, just telling us now he had tickets to go see the Stones, so he's been broken. They'll be back. In in terms of concerts, the way you and I uh, would have been used to them, Mike, uh, that's probably not until September when step four, the final process in this reopening plan, really gets into motion. However, is there a possibility to do maybe limited capacity concerts or social distance concerts in these live venues? And I think now we're going to see over the next few weeks, uh, a lot of these organizers and uh, CEOs really start having these important meetings about, okay, what is safe to do? And can we have smaller shows that benefit both the artists and our customers? Because there's obviously going to be a demand for this kind of stuff. Okay. I think uh, the Stones, uh, you'll, you'll still be able to see them, Tim, I think, when they go back on the road. And I think they will play Vancouver again. These guys are ageless. I saw them in Seattle there, one of their last shows before this whole thing hit. And uh, they are still, they're still rocking out. And I think they're going to hit the road again. What about um, music festivals? There's so many great ones in BC. Are they going to be allowed to operate? This summer? Yeah, so I, I did reach out to the Vancouver International Jazz Festival because they're opening uh, late June and going into early July. That would mean uh, step one into step two. And so there's a lot of excitement there. They're still, again, in that planning phase. I think they had contingencies in case they couldn't do the festival. I'm not sure, Mike, that they had contingencies for maybe possibly doing parts of it live now. So yeah. stay tuned for updates. If I do hear anything with the Jazz Festival, I'll be sure to mention it as soon as I can. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, John. You got it. Thanks, Mike.